Yeah. 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 How many? How many? How? Who else? Thought of Jay Brennan McGee when we were singing that. Yeah. You can just hear him now coming off of that voice. We're getting on the gospel bus or whatever you call it. Um, tonight's kind of our discussion time. It's a chance to ask questions or think about the uh, discussion we had before. Let me see if I can get this connected up there. I wanted to just kind of give you some pictures and such to give perspective on things. Okay. All right. Uh, one of the things I ta- I mentioned briefly that this, as it, and our text opens up with, that our Lord was uh, teaching in the uh, Stoa of Solomon, or the colonnade or porch, depending on your translation. Again, I, I like the fact that the Greek is a word we use in, in discussing ancient architecture. A stoa is this colonnade, which is, as you can see in some of those things up there, columns upholding a roofed area. So here is the Temple Mount, what it would have looked like in the day of um, Jesus. And in the and this is, um, again, the, the temple as it was. Pardon me? It disappeared on us. It disappeared on us. Of course it did. <laughs> It's not there either, so. Um, that looks like a mount. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. The Temple Mount, you know. It's a... Okay, now it says it's on. Let's try this. Okay. So I talked about being, you know, that Jesus was teaching uh, in Solomon's porch or colonnade. So this is the Temple Mount as it would have looked uh, in the days of Jesus. Well, basically, you know, and uh, this is the temple as it would, we call it the second temple. First temple built by Solomon, destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC. Rebuilt by permission of the Persian Empire. So the Persians conquered the Babylonians. And um, the king, the Persian king, Want the, he was a true polytheist. And so he wanted to make friends with all the gods of the nations he conquered. And so this is, it isn't just Israel. To several, he said he would gave permission, gave encouragement, and even gave financial provision. Go back and build your temples. And he thought, the more gods I can have on my side, the better. That's kind of how a polytheist thinks. And so he gave Israel permission and provision to go back and to build their temple and ask the prayers be made for him. Uh, that temple was a pretty modest structure. When Herod came uh, into uh, power, he took as one of his great projects, this is not as much as love for Israel and the biblical faith, as much as it, was, it would be a monument, we call it Herod's Temple also. So this was this grand and incredible that was considered one of the great wonders of the ancient world. This is the second temple. This was destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70. Okay, so that kind of, we keep saying those things and maybe it kind of sticks with us. But you can see on this, um, what we see in here, Solomon's porch. So it's on the eastern side 
And so down below here is the Kidron Valley, and across the Kidron Valley is the Mount of Olives, just to give you some perspective. So this is the northern, southern, and I think that means this must be the western side over here. So, uh, but, so the porch of Solomon is on the eastern side. Now, anytime you get these things off of the internet, you have to always be careful. Um, it may not all be true and correct. So I'm going to make a, one correction here. That's not the beautiful gate. And we read in the book of Acts that uh, the man who was lame was healed at the beautiful gate. And I'm inclined to believe that's not the beautiful gate. And I'll show you in a minute where I think that is. Um, but, but aside from that, there we have it. Let me give you some more pictures. So this is a, um, another recreation of what it looked like. And so here we see the whole temple area. Uh, I think it's 35, 36 acres. Uh, it wasn't that big in Solomon's day, but Herod really expanded it. This is the Temple Mount. And so today, the uh, Dome of the Rock is somewhere right around here. And the Al-Aqsa Mosque is over here. And that's a mosque that will hold some 5,000 people as they pray. Over here is the Antonia Fortress. You can see a bridge across the Kidron Valley from the Mount of Olives and other bridges. And now... The, the magic of PowerPoint. Here's where I think the, the beautiful gate is. This, I think, would have been the primary entrance. And what I love is you go to Israel today and you can stand on these stairs and just think, okay. And so what you want to do is just kind of scoot your feet from one end to the other on each of the steps, and you know you'll step where Jesus stepped. <laughs> so that's kind of the archaeological approach to that. But, um, you know, they've discovered along in these areas... Uh, Immersion of mikvahs where you could, you know, do your ritual purification and all that. And then you would enter down here and you see you'd come out up here into the, this would be the court uh, of the Gentiles here. But, or, uh, and you see the little wall that says no Gentiles beyond here. But anyway, this is the temple area. Jesus was teaching over here. This is the beautiful gate. And so when that man, the lame man was healed by the beautiful gate out here then they, he, they probably eventually came in here and did, apparently this was a popular area of, of doing instruction. And, you know, sometimes we see Jesus in the, in, by the treasury or in the women's court. That's right there. So th that kind of gives you a, a feel for um, what the lay of the land was at that time. Uh, here's, this is a, the model that's at the Israel Museum that's built, and I mentioned this a number of times and showed you different pictures. This is a scale model of what it looked like in Jerusalem. And every time they make an archaeological discovery, um, they'll go back and revise this model to, to uh, the city of Jerusalem to match it. So again, the, the temple opens to the east. And so we, this is the, that means this is the, eastern side, the porch of Solomon. But this gives you a good feel of what the colonnades would have looked like. So that's what it looked like. That's what's behind here. And it was called the, the stoa or porch of Solomon because the tradition is we like Josephus, who was a first century um, Jewish historian, uh, he says this, this part of the temple area had survived from the first temple. 
and so many centuries old. Well, they destroyed the temple, but apparently not the like this. This wall is is the tradition. Now you do on all these historians, you always have to say, yeah, maybe, you know, without being too 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 dogmatic. So yes, the the Babylonians destroyed the temple, and again, it looked not quite like this, but they destroyed the temple. But maybe, but apparently not that colony. That was the tradition in the days of Josephus. So where's the Wailing Wall today? Good question. Get ready to change your perspective. That was good anticipation. Now we're looking from the Western Wall. So that's also called the Western Wall. And so the, the Wailing Wall would be like down here. And so you see what it is. It's, the, it's these um, lower walls. And what's interesting is when you go, if you look up closely, there's a way you can recognize uh, uh, Herodian stonework. Uh, these massive stones have, they, they put like a couple inch frame or border around it that's carved out. And, and those stones have that look. So that's when we say that's what's left of the temple. Technically, this is the temple. And so what it's really, that's what's left of the temple precincts, if you will. But, but I mean, yes, there are stones here that go back to the days of Herod. And it's one of those things we're just amazed. How do they move some of these massive, massive stones? Um, but, but, but this view also shows you, now we can see, since we're looking from the west, this is a good sense of what that colonnade, that stoa, looked like. And, and so Jesus would, apparently this was a popular place for rabbis to do their teaching. And Jesus did his teaching. And this is where the church often gathered in the first, uh, first years of the, of the church. They would gather and, and do teaching and fellowship and I guess, you know, probably evangelism uh, as they're um, speaking there. So, so the church would gather there. Again, we saw that today I mentioned in Acts chapter 5. I can't remember, was it verse 12? By the way, you can kind of see now, this is the exhibit, the model, and this is the retaining wall around the model. So that's not Herodian. <laughs> that's uh, you know part of what's uh, around the precincts, and you can see the tree up here and um, walking there. Here's just another drawing from that angle. So this, you, know, this, you can find this in an ESE study Bible. Here we are looking from the western side. Down here again, the western wall. Here's the temple. Over here would be where, again, the Al-Aqsa Mosque is. This is the, the royal stoa. And down here is the Solomon stoa, or porch, Roman Antonian fortress. And just to give you perspective, and here would be Calvary. Um, if we accept, I think this is based on assuming it's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. But you kind of get a feel for where, how that all relates. So that's, that's where he was teaching. Now, let's talk a little bit again about the when. John throws these details in, and I think, and it's in his mind, and so I want us to think of what he was thinking. And again, um, imagine John writing as he's writing and saying, and so he, he, he was teaching in, this, in the this porch of Solomon, and John probably is in his mind, he's seeing it, you know. He's remembering what it was like. He can hear the voice of Jesus. You can imagine echoing in that and, and carrying um, and again, I should say, if I go back, if he's, if he's teaching and preaching here, right in here is where the Sanhedrin meets. 
kind of, you know, they could probably, if they open the door, they can hear him there and they can hear the crowds. And so we've got to deal with this. They surround him and say, tell us plainly. And his point is, you're not listening. I couldn't have been clear, but you don't want to hear. So there's the temple. So let's, let's talk again. It's Hanukkah is uh, the time frame. And so we've showed this before. The spring fests, feasts over on the right. Uh, this is the, men, uh, the month of Nisan. Now, what's not its original name? It used to be called Dotson. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, so Passover, uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, that's the resurrection time of Jesus. <laughs> All spring, 50 weeks later, Pentecost. The default uh, festivals of trumpets, Day of Atonement, and Tabernacles or Sukkot. Remember, so we, we've seen and, and we mentioned today, here was, you know, John notes when he was at the Passover. Here he was at Tabernacles. And now about two and a half months or so later, on the 25th of Kislev, is when the eight days begin of Hanukkah. So that's winter. And you can see November, December, and I would assume the 25th day of Kislev would put it almost always, if not always, in December. Makes sense? Kind of just get a feel for how it all fits. Um, one helpful resource out there is by Irving Jensen. He does a lot of charts and summaries. And so here's a very helpful chart, and I think I've handed this out before, of the that lays out the time frame of Jesus' ministry. And, and, and it can show you, and notice he says, annual Passovers recorded in the Gospels, and there they are, one, two, three, and then the crucifixion of Jesus. So how many years was his public ministry? Three three years and some months. So that so some will, will say, well, he only ministered for a year. Uh, I think the simplest and clearest evidence points to it. It's a, it's a little more than three years of ministry. You can track the festivals. And so, though, so when we talk about some of these details, um, it helps us get some perspective on it. And so we are here. Here is the uh, three-month period between um, uh, when after the period of tabernacles to the period of um, Pentecost, I mean uh, Hanukkah, and so now we're in Hanukkah. So about three months has passed. We're here in the life of Jesus. So you can see we're in December. And there here in the spring is the crucifixion. So it's getting close. Make sense? I should have put these in earlier. Here's a, here's a picture uh, up on the Temple Mount today. And walking alongside the eastern wall, looking north, so that's right where the colonnade or the uh, Solomon's porch would have been, probably I guess below that. And you see, this is from um, Rittmeyer. Liam Rittmeyer is a architectural archaeologist, and he does phenomenal archaeological draw drawings. And they bring him in all the time because he just had he's. Spent Decades working on this stuff, number of books and stuff. I mention that because you can go online and see uh, a lot of his drawings and work, and he even has a uh, Twitter feed that you can see some of his kind of updates on things. 
And here's another picture that kind of shows the Eastern Wall. Well, Hanukkah, when we think of Hanukkah, a lot of times we think of those uh, menorahs. Remember, that, that's kind of the symbol of Hanukkah. The one on the left is the temple menorah. How many lamps does the one on the left have? Seven. Good. Now, some of you are thinking left, right, which was okay. Notice, can you see then how many on the one on the right? Nine. Nine. So this, and by the way, this is the menorah made by the Temple Institute of gold, ready for the third temple. You can see it's in a glass enclosure overlooking down here. Um, this is the Temple Mount. Down here is the Western Wall. So it's on display. You can see it's ready to go into the new temple. And how big is it? It's hard to tell the dimensions of it. I mean, how big are we talking about here? Mm, tall as a man. So, and the other one is, again, the Hanukkah. And so there are technically eight candles because the ninth one is, is, is the lighter. Okay, so you light that one and then you light the other ones. And now there's a correct order and I can't recall that. Here's the, some of the symbols of Hanukkah. You see the, the, the shamash, the one in the middle is the, the lighting candle. Uh, you see them there and... and Again, around Christmas time, you will see these uh, in some way or another displayed, and that's often a clue of either someone's being inclusive in their holidays or they might be Jewish. Um, some of the other things you'll see there is um, this pastry. That's mm -hmm. uh, a very popular pastry. You know, donuts are really popular, um, and the reason is because it's fried in oil. And, and the whole story of Hanukkah relates to oil. And so as they're eating that, it's kind of a religious duty. You know, so sometimes it might be good to be Jewish. You know, it's just kind of a, a religious moral obligation to eat donuts. Um, some of the other things you'll see here is this is called a dreidel. And they play it. It's a game they play. There's Hebrew letters on there that, that each letter represents the word, a different part of the statement. A great miracle happened there. And, and so, and I'll remind you of the story um, in just a moment. But so that's a, that's a game they play. Why the dreidel? And, and this is one of those things, there's all kinds of theories. They don't even know why the dreidel. But it's a game they still play today. It's, a, it's like a little top they spin. And um, one theory is back in the days of Antiochus, it was illegal to have Sunday school classes like, to have uh, classes teaching Torah, teaching Bible. And so if Antiochus's guards came in, they would quickly just put away their books and start playing with the, the, the tops. And so we're just, we're just playing games with kids. And so, so that's one theory. Um, I'm not sure. Then the other thing down here are these little gold-covered chocolates. And um, that's interesting to me because all growing up, my mother always, we always got uh, a little bag of gold-covered chocolates as a kind of a tradition. Well, it's a Hanukkah tradition. Why? When they got their independence, they could now print, if you will, or, or, or mint their own coins with their, with their own Israeli symbols on it. No longer did they have to use coins with uh, Persian or Greek uh, 
of symbols and deities. And so, so these little coins remind them that's a sign of independence. So I mentioned today that it all kind of goes back to this Antiochus IV, one of the, one of the heirs of the, you know, uh, Alexander the Great conquered the, the Eastern world from North Africa in, uh, into Persia, up into parts of, uh, I think, India, as far as uh, India. Conquered much of that, he conquered that region. He died. It was split up among his generals. One, one, the two ones that most affect <laughs> biblical thinking are the ones, the Seleucids up here in Syria and the Ptolemies down here in Egypt. And you know, they were, you can see if one is attacking the other, guess who? You know, they're they're it's passing right through uh, Israel. And so Antiochus the Fourth, he called himself Antiochus Epiphanes. In other words, God manifest. They took, they like, behind his back, they took a variation of that name and call him Antiochus Epimanes, which means the maniac. <laughs> so he was not popular, especially in the Jewish circles. And here we see him coming down to, to go to war, come up to Alexandria. That's where the Roman general said, nope. You do not have our permit, the Senate's permission to invade Alexandria. <clears throat> Let me think about it. Okay, as long as you don't come out of this circle I've drawn around you, then let me know your answer. He went back, and so he took the same journey back and came to Judea, and they're celebrating his death, or at least his defeat. And uh, he, he destroys, he, he devastates the temple, attacks the people, desecrates, um, and then goes back to Syria. After, so that leads to a rebellion. Uh, the, the, the Jewish priestly family of the Hasmonean uh, family raised up in rebellion. Um, they called uh, them, the, the one of the particular Judas, they called him the Maccabee, the hammer, because uh, he just, for three years of battle it took, and it's just like, it, it, was, it was a very small, it was like, it's kind of like the 13 colonies of America fighting the British Empire. I mean, who would think? But, and so they were under-equipped, way outnumbered, and yet after three years, they were able to drive out the Greeks and, to, and gain their independence. So that, so again, when Jesus is teaching at Hanukkah, here they are celebrating. The menorahs are lit. They're celebrating independence in the, under the shadow of the Roman uh, guards there in the fortress. And so when, when there's talk of him being the Messiah, that, that has political overtones in that day. When, when the Hasmoneans and the Maccabees gained independence, here's a lay of the land and I want to show you that just for a couple reasons. You see Judea, Samaria, this is very much like it is, Galilee uh, in the days of Jesus, Perea, and, and uh, all these other areas. But down here is a region called Idumea. Now, why do I mention that? Um, there was a family down there by the name of uh, Herod. Uh, Idumea, when it was conquered by the Maccabees, they required them to convert to Judaism. And so that's the kind of Jew that Herod was. 
Uh, he was a, it was a mandatory conversion kind of Jew, which, in other words, he was not a heartfelt Jew. And so he, though he was appointed by Rome to be king of the Jews. He's not really Jewish. He's not of the line of David. And his authority comes from not God, but Rome. That was a bitter pill for Israel to, to swallow. Two more slides. Then we can talk. I, I found these pictures. Um, it, this, must, this is a cartoon account of the uh, Battle of Hanukkah. Uh, have you ever heard of the magazine Boy's Life? Mm-hmm. Apparently about five different, at least five different times, they had a holiday edition of, or inclusion that talked about the Hanukkah War. And so this comes from that. And so you can see the Syrians used, uh, they didn't have battle tanks back there, uh, but they had battle elephants and used them in war uh, the, uh, against the, the Jews. Uh, so it was quite a war. This you can see the the priests saying, you know, we can't we, we can't cooperate. And this it was a division. The one who sacrificed the pig on the altar was a Jew, a Jewish priest, who said, you know, we, we got to go along. And the the uh, Hasmonean family said, oh no, we don't. Rather die than desecrate the temple. I mean, so that's it, it was a hard time. They went into hiding. They formed up the troops, and then they went into battle, and eventually won. And so that's the celebration of Hanukkah. So, um, again, that that was a meaningful time uh, in the days of Jesus, celebrating the liberty that that was no longer theirs. For 2,000 years, Jews around the world didn't have their own country. And yet they kept uh, saying, matter of fact, that statement that's on the Dreidel, a great miracle happened there. The Dreidels in Israel say, have the initials, a great miracle happened here. And so uh, so all of this kept kind of in their mind, you know, can we one day regain our, our land? And so you can see the significance that that had. So though, that's some of the background that I you know, just, I don't know how much you'll actually cling to, but at least it sounds familiar. When John's writing in the Feast of Dedication, um, in the Temple of Solomon's Court, that's what's in his mind. And um, so that's that's significant. And it's interesting to note, although Hanukkah was not a biblical festival, apparently Jesus observed it because there he was in the temple at Hanukkah. So that's something that if ever you're talking to a Jewish friend, he might say, do you know Jesus? Uh, we, have, we have record of him in the, test, in, in the temple at Hanukkah. Okay, so that's uh, the background. There'll be a test afterwards. I know I throw all this stuff. I know you'll forget 92% of it at least. But at least somewhere in your mind it's familiar. Okay, so any comments or questions, reactions to today's message? Um, I noticed when I was reading it before, it talked about that said, um, Jesus said in verse uh, 27, I know them, and they follow me. He doesn't say, I know them, and they know me, and follow. And I, I just, I don't know, it just piqued my interest, I guess. <laughs> yes, um, 
of course, earlier he says they know, you know, they, they know my voice and all of that. I think here's emphasis of I know they're they're my sheep. I think and and I think that's a big part of what he's saying here is our, our salvation and security is, is is on his side, and so he says I know them. They are my sheep. And have you ever been? Maybe you've you know seen been around farmers and they they go out and they you know they they know their you know of course it's one of the problems if you're raising cattle and such if it's not dairy cattle it's a little nervous should you name them you know when they when you're going to be loading them up in the trailer soon but but all, but you know he knew them he had a personal care for them is the picture but it but and that's right but it's he's and that's why the emphasis there is on God's side Christ's side. Yes. Um, is, can you tell us what that particular no means? Is that like the intimate no? I, let me double. Uh, well, I, before I answer, let me just look straight at it. What, what is that? Verse 27, right? Yes. Yeah. It's the, um, it's the personal relational no. Uh, for those of you who hear Greek words, that's gnosko. And um, actually, that's where we get our word knowledge. Now, here knows knowledge, is, it's spelled strangely, K-N-O. Well, gnosko, in Greek, it's uh, it starts with a G. So, um, gnosis is, uh, you hear Gnostics. Anyway, yes, it's, the, it's relational. It's personal. Just a quick question. Confession time. Um, were any of you are raised in a or, or early in your Christian life came in maybe from an Arminian perspective that denied uh, eternal security? Was, was that ever an issue in your life? Was was it something you had to wrestle with, or um, has it always been a security as, as a Christian? So how many, this is what you've always known in your Christian life, okay? <laughs> how many forgot to drink coffee tonight? <laughs> um, this, is a, this is a struggle for some, you know, for, for those, and, and, and some of the groups we can think of, certainly the Roman Catholics, uh, Methodists uh, and Nazarenes, holiness groups like that, uh, tend to deny eternal security. A lot of times, have you ever heard it? Oh, you believe that Baptist doctrine, once saved, always saved. And I'm sure the Baptists would be happy to say, oh, yeah, it's our doctrine. Well, and of course it is. The, Baptist, the Presbyterians are right there with them, as is the Apostle Paul and Lord Jesus Christ and a few others. Um, so part of the struggle is this idea of, and I think a lot of people, wait a minute, if you say that, then it doesn't matter what you do. You know, you can, you can, that's like license to sin. That's one of the complaints I've heard. First thing to notice is, but, but let's look at the Bible. And there are passages that, you know, like we've mentioned Hebrews 6. Is that saying you can lose your salvation? And we've talked about it in the past. Uh, that uh, I don't think the best reading of Hebrews 6, 6 would say that. But, you know, again, John chapter 10, to me, is such a powerful and you know, it's not like half a verse that could be disputed, I don't think. It is, he, he lays it out. The only uh, answer I've heard to that is, well, when he says no one can snatch them out of my father's hand, 
but, but he doesn't mean we can't get ourselves out. But you see, you have to kind of read into something that reads contrary to really what the text is saying here. And I'm not trying to be uh, critical there, but, um, but just say I really believe the simplest, clearest reading of the, of the, of the text Jesus is saying we are secure because we, it's, it's his work. And again, that's back to I know them. I'm not going to lose them. I'm, I'm going to care for them. They're my charge. And, and that is such a comfort because if we look at ourselves, man, if, if my salvation depends on my ability to, to, to stay on course, I don't have any confidence at all. At some of those places, you see it every week. The same person's up, you know, going up to the altar and rededicating or reconverting or whatever it may be, because there's just this um, uncertainty in their life. But certainty is not a license to sin. It's a light. It, it is a. It it, it 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 binds us in love to the Savior that would do that. Huh. Don't they turn them? Get this verse and say, "Yeah, well, they can't be. They can't be snatched out, but we can jump out." Yeah, maybe, you know, yeah, we're, you know, so, you know, we can't, he, someone can't pry the fingers from outside, but maybe on the inside we can squeeze out or something. <laughs> it just doesn't seem to fit the text there, is it? And, and again, eternal life, they shall never perish. And that doesn't mean until they sin. You know, and that's, those are some words that I think, again, I'm not doing this to show our theology is right, but. This is a blessed uh, gift from the Lord to have this assurance. Oh, so, I, I was going to confess. Okay, all good. <laughs> so, yeah, technically I would say I was raised in an Armenian. I had no idea <laughs> what an Armenian was, but there was another point to that. Not only, you know, did we not believe once saved, always saved, we also believed that we had the choice to, once we heard it, to be saved or yeah. not saved. Yeah. You know, again, that's a struggle sometimes. Mm -hmm. Well, wait a minute. The Bible tells us to, we must believe. And so that makes it sound like it's, it's my choice in, in the sense of I'm the, it's my volition. But we see again here how much it's the Lord doing it. The Lord gave us to the Son. Now that's speaking of God's elect. And so, and then Ephesians chapter 2 speaks of the fact that by grace you're saved through faith. But notice it, it grace saves through the agency or instrumentality of faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Um, but it's not that he is forcing us against our will to believe. Rather, he's liberal, liberating, enabling our will to believe. And um, again, that's so, you know, that's a, in some ways it's, it's, it's contrary to our our. our, our Normal fleshly way of thinking, you know the old what the Bible says. There's no free lunch somewhere in there. Um, you know this whole thing of it's you know you have to do it. Um, but here's the scriptures. Yeah, Mark. It's, I mean, back to the well. Then you can do whatever you want if you're saved. Was, was it was obviously it said love God and do what you will or do what you want. I mean, basically he's saying what we want is constrained by. Our love of God and First John four is that kind of the basis for that? Yeah, well, First John, a lot of you know the way we talked about. Yes, it's it is, and that's part of it. When in our in all of this is God gives us a new life, He regenerates us, and so we have a new will. 
And so our willing is different. Um, we struggle. I think that's what Romans, Romans 7 is saying. Paul says, um, I don't do the things that I want to do. But you see that his want to has changed. He's still got this sin, uh, indwelling sin that's going to be there until heaven. But he says, um, but I, in my heart, I want to please God. And so I find myself doing what I don't want to do or, and not doing what I do want to do. But the want is there. Where he also says in, in Romans, in that, in that section, uh, in our flesh, we don't want to please God. So, um, yeah, so, so that's a part of it. He changes our want to. And so when we really know the Lord, we're, we less and less want to, do, you know, that's our, we grow more and more to hate sin and love obedience. Tom? Yeah, the, well, three out of the four Gospels have the phrase, with man it is impossible. Yeah, 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 and 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 so, like we we saw in Sunday school, Archie Sproul was talking about the rich young ruler, and I think what the Lord was trying to do is show him he was going straight to the heart. Where's your heart? And what is what is the man trying to do? What can, what what do I do? What do I do? And that's so natural to us. Um, and, and people wrestle with that when we say it's, it's a gift you receive. And a lot of people say, it just doesn't seem right. Um, but the reality is, that's, our, that's the only way that's possible. In our ability, we could never be good enough. We could never merit heaven. Well, when, when we're judging behavior, I mean, that's, that's all we really we can't judge the heart, right? It's yeah. The fact that God has really far beyond ours is kind of what causes the consternation of the heart. Right. So it, 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 we cannot, that's our problem. We can't see the heart, but we can see the, the behavior. And I think it's interesting how much the Lord says, they hear my voice and they follow. In other words, that's an that's a evidence of the fact that they are my sheep. They follow. Now, if you ever watch sheep, they kind of... <laughs> Have you ever led a bunch of uh, three-year-olds or five-year-olds? It's kind of like that. You know, they're kind of following, but it's not exactly a straight line. That's a picture of us. I don't know, did, were you raising your hand earlier? Or, no. Yeah, well, you know, Romans 6 pretty well refutes that. That shall we sin? Yeah. Keep on sinning that grace may abound more. And of course, Paul's answer is man never be. Romans 6, as George is mentioning, is a, you know, think about what's going on in Romans. Um, in the early chapters, he's showing man is fallen. Um, no one seeks after God. No one does good. Uh, then he shows the plan of salvation. Christ's blood, Christ's death in our behalf. It takes us through chapter 3. In chapter 4, he says, is this some new doctrine? No. Same doctrine that uh, we see Abraham and David counting in. Then chapter 5, how you know this whole concept of one man's deed, uh, just like one man's sin cursed all of humanity, one man's deed cursed all in, in Christ. Well, wait a minute. If that's the truth, then it doesn't matter how I live. Chapter 6 and 7. You've been made, you've died to sin. Um that means your your you know your salvation leads to you serve Christ. So yeah, so it's a rec So what that tells me is, if people are criticizing you for saying, well, if people believe live like believe that, then they'll live any way they wanted. 
you're probably getting the gospel right because <laughs> that's the problem Paul is in. You know, he had to, he anticipates that issue, and that's why chapter six fits into uh, his his development in Romans. Yes, sir. And Second Corinthians five tells us that we become new creatures when we're saved, and the things that used to not bother us before salvation now do bother us. Yes. Um, and we have a conscience against sin. And yes, we still sin, but it's not because we go living like we want to just do whatever we want. In our new nature, we have new <clears throat> tastes, mm -hmm. new interests, <clears throat> new delights. But now, as you've been walking with the Lord after a few years, then you've also experienced, you get down the road a little bit, and the things that you were perfectly comfortable with, now you're like, oh, what was I doing? <laughs> and you become more sensitized to that and so and 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 that to me is one of the evidence of your genuine salvation i think i shared when i was a camp counselor one summer <clears throat> and i met with these young guys in the cabin and i'd say well how are you doing in your christian life and some guys say oh, i'm doing absolutely great and i thought this guy's got problems <laughs> now the guys that came to me and said it was a constant struggle i can't believe just before i came up here you wouldn't believe the way i spoke to my parents and all this i said this guy's got hope because he recognizes his sin. You know, but when someone says, oh, no problem at all, then you start wondering, does this person really know the Lord? Because um, it's a growing process, and even our sensitivities change, and our delights change. And, and that's why we have to keep in fellowship and in the Word, because if we're not in fellowship in the Word, then our senses can get dulled by what we're around Yes, sir. Going back to the passage of um, um, we can't get out of the grasp of, of Christ. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Johnson used to say that's one of the most emphatic negatives in the Greek language that you can have. He says, in Texas, we translate it, ain't no way, no how. <laughs> that would be about it. It's, it's interesting. You know, in English, one of the rules is a double negative is a positive. Um, in Greek, a double negative means really negative and this is a double negative and it's, and it's 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 the most it is the most emphatic greek expression of no you absolutely shall not perish um, you shall not you know it, 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 it's that confidence so that's the thing it, that does not fit with unless you sin or unless you backslide unless you fall away um that's not in there uh, and I, and I like the way the Westminster Shorter Catechism, you know, talks about that. It says, you know, though, you know, that we have this assurance and perseverance, even though we may stumble, we may fall, it will not be a full and final departure from the Lord if we're truly born again. And um, again, First John two talks about, you know, the the apostates they went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. And so that shows they were not of us. Their, their nature was never changed. They were never born again. Questions? Any other thoughts on that? Uh, uh, yes, sir. Yes, I would just also add that, you know, that we still should take the warnings of the Hebrews seriously you know we are assured of our salvation but that's in the bible for a reason it's that we need to take that warning very seriously yes the, like hebrews and we often talk uh 
about the warning passages of the book of Hebrews. And, 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 I, and the way I take that, you know, there's different ways. So again, the, an Arminian would say, see, that's saying he's talking to a church or to believers, and he's saying you could lose your salvation. That's one approach you could take. <clears throat> I think the best way to understand those warnings is, um, have you ever noticed that when I, I'm talking to the church, I talk to those who may not know Christ and need to? In other words, even though we've got all these people gathered, there may be some there that don't really know the Lord. And I think the warning is to, you may be going with the crowd and think you're doing just great. Um, but be sure you know the Lord. And the scriptures talks about, you know, make, make your, your, your calling sure. Uh, and that's where our works do not save us. But our works can, can be a, a mirror, a reflection of what's going on in our heart. And if we can continue unabated in a course of sin, then the question becomes, it's not right here. And um, we may need to think, have you truly trusted Christ? So yes, I think that's the warning side of it. Again, so the security is not a license to sin. <laughs> it, it, it binds us in greater gratitude. I'm sure. I'm curious to know if that um, satisfies Joey's thoughts. Did that answer your question or agree? Okay. Well, again, find your, you know, mark these verses, uh, especially like verses 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my hand. So especially I'd say <coughs> verses 28 and 29, those are good verses to know. In your mind, underlined, um, you know, the assurance that it is God who keeps us. And um, you know, that's something you can be sharing with others who wrestle with these issues. Not to debate, but to comfort hearts and guide to truth. Good. Okay. Well, with that in mind, uh, uh, we will have our closing hymn and then I'll close us in prayer. Thank you. Thank you.